Steve Heimoff left behind four years of directing a career planning and placement center at a barrier college to combine his two loves into a career, wine, writing, to become a wine writer. He was successful and became one of the nation's preeminent wine writers, critics, and personalities, and he retired in 2016. He's joining me today for a conversation accompanied by his little dog, Gus, in Oakland, California, for a journey along the timeline of a writer and wine lover who found a way to bring his favorite things and his career together and a story of what it means to chase that opportunity and to come through on the other side. Thank you for sitting down with me today with Steve Heimoff. Steve, we were just talking about a great story about uh, this really interesting time on the Russian River. Maybe you can set the stage a little bit. Sure. Why were you on the Russian River? Well, I was already in my wine career, and uh, I really wanted to write a wine book. I just wanted that accomplishment. But it was hard. I couldn't get an agent. I would write sample chapters, and no one was interested in, in reading them. Um. So one day the phone rings, this is probably 2000, 2001, and it's this editor at UC Press, University of California Press, and he says, uh, I want to take you to lunch and talk about you writing a wine book for us. And I'm like, what? That was crazy. So we went to lunch, and the upshot was he said, you you can write a wine book about anything you want. And I mean, I was just mind blown. That doesn't happen. That's not the way it works right but it but I was very fortunate because he believed in me and trusted me so I decided to write a book that was uh, sort of loosely based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness or Coppola's Apocalypse Now right where it's a journey down a river and stuff happens and it builds to a climax or a crescendo but in this case, it would have a wine theme because the river would be the Russian River, um, which is a great wine river. It winds through Mendocino and Sonoma counties and then spills out into the Pacific on the Sonoma coast. So as part of that, um, I made the acquaintance of a geologist at uh, Sonoma State University because I was very interested in learning more about the geology of wine country. And in particular, what had formed the Russian River. No one had ever explained, like, how old is the river? How did it get born? How does a river start? So uh, this geologist, Terry Wright, was uh, a great help to me. And he was also kind of a wild man. He had big, bushy white beard, and he he wore sort of like uh, Harrison Ford, uh, Lost Raiders of the Lost Ark type, you know, clothing. Yes. And he said, well, why don't we take a canoe trip down a portion of the Russian River and I can show you more about the geology that way. So we met up um, 
we met, I drove up to the, uh, uh, the Geyserville Bridge, if, if you know where that is, and then um, left my car there, and we drove up in his truck with the canoe on the top up to the Mendocino County line, and the plan was to uh, row the, uh, I don't know, that's about 12 miles maybe, down the river back to the Geyserville Bridge. Um, but it was early June, and I think it was 2001, and, and California had had a record snowpack that year. Um, and it being early June, the snow was melting, right? And all that water, you know, had to go somewhere, and a lot of it found its way into the Russian River, which was very, very high and very, very cold. And the Russian River, I learned from my subsequent research is, is not a dangerous river by any means. But um, after a winter like that, it can, ha it can have its bad spots. And so we hit a portion of it that's known as the Graveyard Run, which is at Asti in Sonoma County. And uh, we're, you know, paddling along. And then I heard this noise before I saw anything. It reminded me of the subway in New York where I grew up just this roar and I'm like what what's that and then I saw you know maybe 300 yards away the white and the spray and stuff and I said what the hell is going on and Terry said all right brace yourself just do exactly what I tell you he's in the front and I'm in back you know we're both paddling and um then we hit the the white water and suddenly instead of going straight down the river we're heading 90 degrees to the right to the bank and I was about to say to him what the, you know why are we heading toward the bank but before I could get the sentence out the the boat capsized and I was underwater in what they call the spin cycle going you know being turned up and down with my face being rubbed in the the gravel down there on the riverbed um and the upshot was that I managed to grab hold of a fallen tree which they call a strainer because it was like a you know the claws of the branches straining okay and as it turned out that's where people die they get caught in the strainer and they really? can't get out and they drown um so i'm hanging on to this tree and then i see the canoe is floating away down the river and i realized very quickly that we need that canoe if we're going to get the hell out of here right Terry, meanwhile, had been washed onto a sandbar in the middle of the river, which is basically, he was stranded on a sandbar. So um, I, I grabbed hold of the canoe with my leg, and I'm holding onto the fallen tree with my arms. And the river's like really fucking going fast, man, you know? And Terry's on the other side, and he's all wet. He'd lost his glasses. So I'm like... Okay, you're the you're supposed to be the wild man, you know, expert. What the hell do we do now? And he said, "Well, you have to get the canoe to me somehow here on the sandbar." And like, how am I supposed to do that? You know, it's like 30 maybe 40 feet away and raging water. And whenever you watch something like the Weather Channel, they say, you know, even four inches or six inches of rushing water can kill you can sweep you off your feet and this is the russian river it's got to be 15 20 feet deep 
and it's roaring down there like a freight train. So um, he said, well, just grab the boat and swim across to me. I'm like, fuck you. There's no way. So anyway, um, there, were, there was some rope in the boat, and I lashed the rope to one of the, the grips in the boat, and then I balled up the rest of it, and I threw it across to him. And it took a couple times to, for it to reach him, and he went out as far as he could. Then he got the other end, and he reeled the boat over to his side, and then he said, now you have to come over here. And I'm like, well, we're back in, in square one. I mean, how do I get there? Because the the bank that I had washed up in was at least 10 feet high. And um, so Terry said, well, swim across. And we went through that thing. And I'm like, I'm not going to swim across there. And then I thought, well, maybe if I go a little upstream or downstream, it's a little calmer and, and I can swim across to the sandbar. So I scrambled up the bank, falling multiple times, because it was really 10 feet of mud and pebbles and rocks and stuff. And I got up to the top, and it was just this dense growth of poison oak and and brambly wild berry bushes with thorns and stuff. And I remember, you know, like trying to get through all that brambly stuff to get a little bit upstream and it was it was hard because the, all the bushes were up to my face and then I realized like I was getting bitten by spiders because I'm, I was going through like these spi- and I started to lose it and I realized like I was hyperventilating and panicking and I realized like that's when you die in these situations is you know so I took a couple deep breaths and I went back to the place where we'd wiped out and I went back down the bank and I said, Terry, there's no way to get across the river and what are we going to do? Anyway, he threw the rope back to me. I tied it around my waist and he said, just go for it, dude. And he said, I've got the other end of the rope. You're not going to get swept away. And I got across there and so on and so forth. And then we managed to get back in the boat and back down to the... Uh, as a real bridge but I did end up with a pretty serious case of hypothermia and a great story <laughs> <laughs> it did it make it into your book yes and if you want to mind what's the name of that book a wine journey along the Russian River and just out of curiosity a few things that came up that that tug at the mind one did you do any follow-up research uh, specifically about either that area, the graveyard itself, yeah. um, to learn so much about what can happen to people. You, that, that great example that, that people actually die whenever they try and use that strainer as a way or yeah. they get caught in it. They get that caught can in be it, right. the biggest complication. Yeah. Um, was there any sort of information that you learned looking up or researching the graveyard that sort of well, I did impacted learn, your experience. Even yeah, more? I did learn. I, I know this is in the book. I think it was 1998, maybe 94. Not not that much longer before our trip that a kid had been killed at the graveyard run in a strainer. Yeah, and that was the last time I ever canoed. It's not not that I'm afraid of it. It's just that I'm not a big outdoors type. So that's interesting, though, that you're not a big outdoors type, and yet this was a a way to 
sort of enter into your your journey down the Russian River as yes. part of this book project. Yes, because I was desperate to uh, learn more about many aspects of the Russian River, not just its geology and and uh, and topography, but also the the way that the the Russian River runs um, down the Alexander Valley of Sonoma County, okay. and to the east are the Mayakamas Mountains, which is the big mountain range that runs down the spine of the North Coast Wine Country. And at, at that time, 2001, um, there were many new vineyards that were being installed at quite high elevations in the Mayakamas Mountains for the first time, because although viticulture in Sonoma County is very old, and in fact, it dates back to uh, the Russians planted the first grapevines in Sonoma County in, if I remember correctly, I think it was 1812, out on the coast. But for the next 150 years or so, the, the viticulture had been mainly confined to the flatlands of the valley on either side of the Russian River because developing vineyards in the hills was just prohibitively expensive. You had to fill forests and clear land and, and rip boulders out and build roads. And in many cases, it was so steep that they would have to terrace uh, the vineyard. So no one could really afford to do it for 150 years. But in the 19... 80s, as wine became very popular with the baby boomers, um, there was a, a, uh, a an explosion of interest starting in Napa Valley, and then it spilled over to Sonoma County. And suddenly, the, these farmers, really, who had been farming on the floor of the Alexander Valley for a century, found that they, they had quite a bit of money. You know, they could sell their Cabernet Sauvignon and their Zinfandel and their Chardonnay for more money than they ever thought. And with their increased income, they could afford to start creeping up into the hills. Interesting. And that was a very significant development because all over the world, um, it, it's always been true that the best grapes grow on hills, not flats, for, for many, many reasons. Um, and finally, they could afford to do that. So to travel on the Russian River in Sonoma County, for me, was one of the best ways to actually get a perspective on the vineyards that you, you can't really see from the highway from 101. Um, so I had many, many different reasons for wanting to do that. And also because the whole conceit of the book was a journey on a river. And I thought, well, you got to be on a boat at some point if you're going to be on a river. If you're so, going to talk about a river, you got to yeah, go on the river. You got to go on the river. Which I think is a great opportunity to move into. So why were you writing a book about wine on the Russian River? Because we haven't explained to anyone what you were doing up until that point that would yeah. lead you to, to want to take on this project. Well, as I said, I had wanted to write a, a wine book. Um, I moved to California in the late 70s um, to go to grad school in San Francisco. And I graduated and I got my... Little job, and this is the Reagan era when everyone is out there 
building careers and making money. And I had my little suit and my attache case, and I would be commuting on BART. And uh, that lasted for about four years, and it was a disaster. Um, I got fired from my job in 1988-89, and I came back to this place where we sit, and uh, I realized, like, you know what, that I, I, it, it was wrong for me to, I'm not cut out to be a suit and tie guy and, and working in office and go to meetings all day long and have bosses and stuff like that. And I, I realized, like, I need to do something that I love, that I'm passionate about and where I'm my own boss. And, and the thing that I was passionate about, there were only two things I loved. One was writing. Um, I remember being four years old, maybe younger, and sitting in, at my mom's vanity table with the mirror. And I would get pieces of paper and a pencil and watch my reflection in the mirror making scrawls, making believe that I was writing in script. I mean, I couldn't wait to write. I just, you know, maybe there was something karmic. I don't know. Um, but I loved writing and, and I loved wine. Um, it, I'd never been into wine, but when I moved to California, I moved in with my cousin. And the first night, uh, she and her husband said, let's barbecue. So they went, went to the Safeway, bought a couple steaks. Then she wheels the cart into the wine aisle and she starts picking up bottles of red wine, one after the other, and reading the labels, the front and the back. And I'm like, okay, I'm just tagging along. And, you know, she picks up her sixth, seventh, eighth bottle. And finally I said, what are you doing? Just grab one. They're all the same. And she looked at me with uh, this famous arch of the eyebrow, which my cousin is very good at. And she said, they're not all the same. And you don't just grab a bottle of wine. You think about it. And something happened, Seth. Something unexplainable happened literally in that moment um, where, as I said later, I got bit by the wine bug with no past experience or interest at all in wine zero. Um, and a couple years later, when I was actually a working writer, I did an article where I interviewed um, mainly psychiatrists um, that I knew who were wine collectors. And I said, how do you explain wh what happened to me? You know, what is the psychological explanation? And they said, you know, it's the same as, as anybody who, who just suddenly gets into something. It can be, I don't know, you know, race car driving or stamp collecting or crocheting or anything. It's just, so I don't think there was an explanation for it, but I, I just got passionately, deeply, insanely involved in, in wine um, to the point where I was living in San Francisco at that time. And on weekends when my friends would be out at Marina Green, you know, throwing a Frisbee around or flying kites or something, I would literally in my car be driving from one end of town to the other, going to the better wine stores and just stopping the, the wine salespeople and saying, you know, you don't know me, but 
why are the, you know, these are both Chardonnay, but this one is $4 and this one is $12. Why, if they're the same thing? And so I, I just went berserk on wine. So when I got fired, and it was a wake-up call. I don't know if you've ever been fired, but it's scary and humiliating. And I had a mortgage, and, um, and I just knew, like, I can't go through that experience again ever so i love two things wine writing put them together i'll be a wine writer and uh it couldn't be done today because it's too competitive um but in 1988 who the hell wanted to be a wine writer everyone wanted to be an mba that was the big deal right um so the leading wine magazine in the country then and now still is the Wine Spectator, and they were headquartered in, in uh, San Francisco. So I'd already done a little freelance writing for the Oakland Tribune and the East Bay Express, and I sent them a couple of my pieces. And they sent me the standard, thank you very much, we'll keep your interest on record in our file, and if anything happens, we'll give you a call. But see... The job that I had been fired from was running the career center at California College of Arts, where you went. Yes. And one of the things that I knew as a career counselor, and this was advice that we gave our, our students, was if you know where you want to work, right, you send them your resume or your CV, they send you the standard thank you, we'll keep it on file. Don't accept that as the end of the story, right? Like two weeks later, call them back. Two weeks later, call them back again. Make yourself a pest. Let them know that you're not going to let them go, right? So um, the editor, managing editor of the magazine, a guy named Jim Gordon, who I still know. And I, I mean, I must have called him every two weeks for months. And eventually we established a certain rapport over the phone. And I said to him one day, I said, you know, Jim, one of two things is, is going to happen. Either you're going to hire me or you're going to have me arrested for harassing you because I'm not letting go of this. So one day, it's probably four or five months after all this, he calls up and he says, okay, I'm going to give you a 50-word story, 5-0-word story. There's a winemaker up in Napa. He just quit his job to start his own little winery. I want you to telephone him, get a brief interview, 50 words, and send it to me. And, of course, that was before email and stuff. I had to send it through the U.S. Post. So I got a bunch of those. And then after maybe, I don't know, two or three months, he calls up one day and he says, I have a crisis. I said, what? And he said, there's a huge big meeting in Napa Valley and all the French winemakers from the Rhone Valley, all the most important winemakers from the Rhone Valley part of France are coming over to Napa Valley to have a three-day symposium with all the California winemakers who specialize in those grape varieties. And it's going to be a real showdown and it's at Meadowood, which is the top resort in Napa Valley. And he said, and I was going to send 
Harvey Steinman, their, their chief guy, um, to cover it for three days. But I, I can't remember what happened. He broke his leg or he had the flu or something. And Jim said, can you do it? I said, when is it? And he said, tomorrow. And I said, yes. <laughs> and, you know, visions of like, this is the way stardom happens on Broadway. The, the, you know, it's the day before opening night and the, the star gets sick and suddenly the understudy. Time go, to shine. Time to shine. So I went up and um, I, I just wrote the best fucking article. I, to this day, decades later, I, it's probably one of the best things I ever wrote because I knew what was on the line. I mean, and the whole shtick was that the French and the Californians were very paranoid of each other because um, the French, of course, had known for centuries that they make the best wine in the world and no one else need apply, right? They were very arrogant about that. But they kept hearing, like, through the grapevine that these Californians, man, you better keep an eye on them because they're coming up right behind them and they're getting the money, right? So the French came over here just to sort of scope out the competition and find out who the hell are these people. Maybe we should find out about them. The Californians, meanwhile, wanted to learn everything they could about the French, their, their, their uh, technique, what kind of uh, rootstocks, what kind of budwood do you use? How do you know what variety to plant in what particular soil? All that technical kind of stuff. And the French were not about to be forthcoming because these were like their trade secrets. So I already knew that there was going to be a lot of tension in there. And I thought, well, I'm going to be up here for three days and I want to capture the atmosphere of this. And, and I realized that one of the best places to capture that was I, I would at, literally hang out in the men's room at Meadowood in one of the stalls with my tape recorder and a pad and pencil. And that, and you could overhear conversations that the gentleman would be having at the urinals. Sometimes they would be two Frenchmen, so I couldn't understand it. Sometimes it would be a Frenchman and a Californian, and sometimes it would be two Californians. But you could really, you know, literally pick up stuff. Like here's the chief of, of the, you know, one of the big government guys in France, and he'd be saying like, these, these Californians, they don't know shit. We're not going to share our secrets with them. And I'm like, write that down. So, so it was a good article. It had a lot of technical stuff in it, but it had those little gossipy kind of things. And they made it a cover story. Really? And then they gave me the job. They said, they said that was one of the best articles that anyone has ever written for our magazine. And will you write for us? And I was like, and that was, that was that. That's a great story. Yeah. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. I want to pause there, though, and just go back a little bit. Because you had some awareness on a few moments. And I'd love to just get a sense of who you were coming up to the moment when you moved here. And oh. had that first uh, experience with wine, and then I want to come back from that back to the you know the time when you began working because 
there's a couple of things that that stick out. One is that this this epiphany, this mm-hmm. this moment of recognition, mm-hmm. when someone said to you, "There is a difference," yeah, and you find out by mm-hmm. learning more, mm-hmm. which I think started you on that path to well. How am I going to learn more about this thing that's so amazing to me? Mm-hmm. And that, that started you on this journey to mm-hmm. experiencing and investigating each wine source and mm-hmm. asking, what's going on? Mm-hmm. What do I not know? How can I understand better? Mm-hmm. And just for a little history, for example, you came here for grad school, but where did you graduate from for your uh well, I grew up in, in New York City, just a Jewish kid from the Bronx. Where in, in, Bron- in the Bronx? Yeah, Perfect. Yankee Stadium. And uh, went to undergrad at a small uh, liberal arts school in Western Mass, Clark University. Yeah. Graduated. This is the 60s. Um, so very quickly fell into a drug and drug, sex, rock and roll lifestyle, but managed nonetheless to <laughs> get my BA in philosophy. Um, 1969, graduated, didn't know what to do. Um, stumbled across a hippie spiritual commune out in the middle of nowhere in the Berkshire Mountains um, and fell in love with the kids there. They were like me. They were young and <clears throat> idealistic and long hair. And they were looking for, uh, you know, love and peace and truth and the Beatles. And I joined that commune and stayed there for 10 years. Um, but things very, things went south and, you know, what started in 68, 69 is the most beautiful experience you could possibly conceive of ended up with, well, the Manson family had happened by then. And, you know, the whole hippie thing went upside down to make a long story short, we had a maximum leader, the young man who had started the commune, and he, he went insane mm. uh, and took advantage of that. It's the same old story. You know, he was fucking everybody while nobody else was allowed to have sex. Mm. He demanded that we literally sign our paychecks over to him. We had 400 people at one point. And he he was buying, he had a fleet of Rolls Royces and he bought himself a plane. And meanwhile, um, the mothers couldn't afford food or diapers for their babies. And we would have to hitchhike to and from our jobs and no one would, I mean, it was, it was terrible. And, um, do you mind if I ask what the name of the commune was? It went through different iterations A very, very famous, um, commune in its day um it ended up being called the renaissance community or the renaissance church and there's a vast archive on the internet about it um it was really one of the biggest most successful communes in the country for many years what was it called when you first joined it nothing it was just went by nothing i mean i was number 13 and they were just living in a lean-to they built off the grid um in a field in southern Vermont. Um, it became, I think our first name was the Brotherhood of the Spirit. And then when we really got big and started getting rich and buying real estate, they had to incorporate as a 401c3, I believe it was, charitable mm-hmm. 
and and Michael named it the Renaissance Church, aka Renaissance Community. So things got so bad that in '78, and I've been there for ten years. Um, I confronted him one day, and I said, "You know what? I was crying. I felt that bad, you know." And I said, "What do you look? What you've done?" You know, we believed in you. All we wanted was uh, to create a new reality of, of love and peace and friendship. And look what you're doing. These terrible things. And he was already into coke by then. And he, he formed a rock band where he was the lead singer. And he modeled it after... Uh, he wanted to be John Kay from Steppenwolf, if you remember. Mm-hmm. He was a tough guy. He was the leathers and he bulked up on weightlifting so he had a gig that night at a little bar about 40 miles away from where we lived and um it's a little honky tonk country bar and so he he said why don't you drive down to the gig with me and just get it out you know just pour it out on me unleash on me let tell me everything that you're feeling, all your frustrations. So we drove down there, and I, I, I did. I just shared everything with him. And then they had their gig, and he was just drinking beer all night long and, and snorting coke. And at some point, it was like into his third set, um, he came over, and I was crammed into a booth in this honky-tonk bar, and he just started beating the shit out of me. And I'm a little guy, and he was a big, you know, six-one really bulked up. He must have been 200 solid pounds of muscle. He's your size, basically. Um, and I mean, I just freaked out. It was in the middle of the winter. It was like 17 degrees and I ran out of the bar without my coat and he chased me and he caught me and he picked me up and threw me against the side of the bar and I fell in the bushes and then he dusted his hands off and walked inside. And he was down there with his uh, core group they, those were my friends, and I remember their faces watching him beat me up, and they were just like sort of smiling. And that was it. I, I had a hitchhike back in the middle of the night in 17 degrees in a T-shirt um, on country roads. And I just, next day was like, I got to get out of here. So I called uh, this cousin I, I was telling you about, and and... She was still my best friend, and she was up in Benicia, in the North Bay. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Man, I got to get out of here." And she said, "Don't think twice. You're you're moving here. Just get yourself a plane ticket. We'll pick you up at SFO, and and you will stay with me and Keith for as long as you need to figure out what you want to do, save some money." And I borrowed two hundred bucks, flew out the next day. Um, Stayed with my cousin for nine months until her husband was like, I think it's time for Stevie to go, right? So I don't know if all that answers your question. But, you know, then I got the job and got fired and then got the, the wine thing going. It, it's not so much about answering a question. It was more about just providing a little bit of context okay. about what had preceded this moment when someone says something to you that connects. And what I find really interesting is that you've already gone through 10 years of hearing 
messages yeah. that spoke to you. Yeah. And in many ways, you had gone through a process of interpreting those and experiencing them, and you knew how profound they could be, mm-hmm. and yet you'd also seen just how manipulative yeah. or destructive. Yeah. And yet I'm curious because while wine can in many ways through labeling or marketing like anything else be misconstrued but there's a there's a root to the truth with wine especially if you can find the source and what i'm really kind of uh, struck by right now is that after all these experiences in order for you to better understand wine and what this thing was that you wanted to learn more about because Mm -hmm. of how much you enjoyed it you found a way to the source and that was always the answer to discovering that mm-hmm. um, with the group that you'd already been with before you can seek so many answers and only only find so much truth through other people mm-hmm. through uh, a group effort um, right but when you're dealing with how does a natural process occur? Yeah. There's really only facts involved when it comes to something like Well, wine. that's a good point. There are no facts involved in spiritual interpretation. I mean, it's just it doesn't whatever exist. you think, you know. Right. There's text and then there's how it's interpreted. There's yeah. messages and how that's they're interpreted. Right. Yeah. And yet this message from your cousin, who is a close friend, and the way they were able to just sort of parse through whatever you'd been believing up until that point. Yeah. And I'm just curious, had you had much wine before that? No, was it something I, you enjoyed say, regularly? It was, just, it was zero. So I mean, in my life, you, wine was, in, in when I was an undergraduate, the only purpose wine had was to be cheap and to get drunk. I mean, I don't know if you're old enough to remember some of the brand names. Ripple? I've heard the name, yes. Bally High? Yes. Boone's Farm? Boone's Farm is legendary. I mean, that should that be everyone's was, high school know, like, experience, at least as far as I've been told. Yeah, that um, was it. I mean, aside <laughs> from that, and then the, the good stuff was uh, Lancers. I remember Lancers came in a brown ceramic jug, and it was like, you know, $5 instead of $2, and that was the really good <laughs> shit. So, but no, which, you know, which is why, I mean, as I said, to this day, um, I'm mystified as to how something can happen that quickly out of the blue i just don't i guess it's like falling in love i mean you know you don't you can't control it you can't predict it and then there it is it's just it happens so you discover the love of your life you potentially not to put words in your mouth but you discover a great love yeah how about that yeah and through this discovery you then are able to return to it after the attempt at graduate school and the result of it being a corporate job which doesn't fit who you are well i never left it so i I didn't have to return to it oh i mean even when i was working um excuse me i had joined there was a a wonderful consumer wine group a national group it was called les amis du vin the friends of wine and um i had joined the san francisco chapter and in fact, they asked me to lead it at one point, and I just felt like I didn't have the uh, time to do that. But um, so I had never left it, even when I was working. I, I was we were we would have dinners at least once a week, and have guest winemakers at various San Francisco restaurants, and I would visit uh, wine country. So and this stuff. Something... And, and also, 
beginning the, the beginnings of this library. And to this day, when you know, if people ask me like, "What's the best way I can get into wine?" I'm like, "Books, man, books. There are so many fabulous wine books out there, and some of them are very old. And one of the best things that that I found for me was to look for old wine books. You know, um, after prohibition ended in 1933, there was a spate of wine books that came out in the United States." because there was so so much thirst after what was it 13 years of, of drop being dry and people just were thirsting for knowledge about wine and so there were some wonderful wine books uh written in the 30s and i have a bunch of them now so that so that was part you know i never left wine i was always reading wherever i traveled anywhere i would find bookstores and, and i would just beeline to like do you have any old wine books no. So this is something that was happening continuously, continuously. from that from that you know first yeah. sort of exposure and experience, yeah. Yeah. and then it became that natural decision when you got fired, got fired, and were looking for well, what am I going to do next? Yeah, and knowing kind of these things that you didn't want to put up with again, these things that you didn't want to go through, right? And how wine became this this place where you said. All right. Well, it's one of my loves as well as writing. Let yeah. me combine these two right. and see what's possible. Yeah. Um, and everything leading up to that moment is, is a very interesting story. And then I, I want to know what happened after you started working regularly for the Wine Spectator. Was there mm -hmm. this? Was it a gradual? Was there this kind of explosion of opportunity to, yeah. you know, immerse even deeper? H how did that well continue? From when that you write for back then, or even now, I guess when you write for Wine Spectator, um, you get famous pretty fast. Um, big fish, small pond, kind of thing. But you know, among wine circles, and especially here in California, because California is the center of the American wine industry. Um, I think back then, California accounted for something like 90% of all the wine produced and sold in America. Now, I don't know what it is. It's probably maybe 75%. But when, when you know, your name, your byline is going in the nation's leading wine magazine and you're reporting on California, um, yeah, it was it was a rush. I got it was very heady. I I have to say that. Really? Yeah. Uh, first experience you can remember that sort of it caused you to recognize just what was going on or how people start famous sending you free wine. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like everyone wants their wine reviewed in the nation's magazine of record. And now I wasn't reviewing wine. I hadn't reached that point yet. They wouldn't let me do that, right? I, I was writing about wine, but I wasn't reviewing it. But I could get the winery's name or the winemaker's name into my articles. Um, and that was almost as good as a good score. Yeah. You know? So, alone. for example, if you're writing an article, let's say um, a very typical article let's say you're writing an article about california zinfandel and let's say there are a thousand wineries that produces zinfandel 
you, you obviously can't write about them all. You know, you have to pick and choose. And the ones you cover are up to the writer. That, that's up to me. And, and the winemakers and the winery owners knew that. So there was great interest in having their winery be in my articles as opposed to somebody else's winery. And that resulted in really stuff that, I mean, in retrospect, you couldn't do some of the stuff today that, that, I, that I did back then um, because it would be considered conflicts of interest. And so, but I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't look at it that way. Get, you know, being invited to the, uh, the great restaurants, um, being flown someplace on somebody's private jet or helicopter, um, being put up in, in the most resplendent Ritz-Carlton's and four-star hotels and eating these, you know, Michelin-starred restaurant meals. Um, and I did not know that. I mean, it was generally not understood. This is late 80s to the mid-90s. Gradually in the 90s, there began to be an awareness that, hey, there are rules here, you know. But somebody like the sort of... chief wine... Critic for a major American major, paper. No problem. Um, and someone did an expose on him and they said that, you know, he, he would call up wineries and say, well, I'll write about you. This is in his city, but you have to take me to the most expensive restaurant in town and you have to bring, and he would literally tell them the individual, individual wines he wanted them to bring. Like you have to bring 19, you know, 74 Heights, Martha's Vineyard, Cabernet Sauvignon, or 1961 Chateau Petrus from Bordeaux. These are like vastly expensive wines. And so he was playing by the rules of an earlier era. And he got busted in his, and he was fired. And that, and that sent big ripple effects through the wine industry. And gradually, you know, the not just writers like me, but publishers, the owners of the magazine started realizing like, wow, we have to get a little more scrupulous about this stuff. So things started tightening up. But, but it, you know, you were asking me how I knew that uh, my star was ascendant. And that was because the wine was pouring in and the in invitations were pouring in. People would pick me up in fucking limousines right here on Montecito Avenue. I remember this one time where someone, he was begging me to go up to Lake County. And I said, nah, I don't want to drive to Lake County. I don't care about Lake County. And he said, I'll send a limo. We'll, we'll bring it out to Oakland Airport. You'll go to the business entrance, not the main thing. And, and I'll have uh, my private jet helicopter waiting for you 20 yards from where the limo lets you off. You can choose your own route up to Lake County. Wow. Another time, a Napa winemaker, same thing. Um, and he's like, let's take a helicopter. Where do you want to go in my jet helicopter? And I'm like, let's, can we go under the Golden Gate Bridge? And he said, absolutely. I mean, it was like a lifestyle. And, and the money was never great. But the perks were just ridiculous. It was very, very enjoyable. I just have to say that. And then 
you know, then you start getting invited to host consumer panels or to speak at consumer events. And I got the book deals and then there were the book signings and stuff. And the wineries would invite you to have a book signing and with their, I mean, it was just very, very heady. All of those examples that you provide are, I mean, I think one or two of those would be just signature experiences that someone could say, wow, that was an amazing opportunity that I had once and it was so wonderful. And you're talking about numerous times yeah, for t- you know 25 years yes so yes that that's a perfect example of just how quickly but things I, changed for you but i and i don't want to leave anybody with the impression that that's all there was because i mean th- that was aside and apart from the work i mean the work is always about good writing and good journalism and and tasting and tasting is hard you know i mean people who have never you know, formally tasted wine. Um, I, you know, I guess they think that, oh, you just, you know, sit around and you start drinking wine. You say, I like this, whatever. But no, I mean, you really have to dive deep and, and write well, because I always understood that, like, people's lives are at stake in my reviews, right? These are primarily younger men and, and women with kids and staffs. You know, they have field workers they have to pay and cellar workers and stuff. And one bad review from yours truly could really devastate a, a family business. And, and to realize that, that was sort of like the counter way to, to like all the, the freebies and, and the good stuff. It's like, wow, you know, I, I have to take this very seriously and um and and i like to think that i did you know but on the other hand if somebody sends you wine you know you're not asking them to send you wine they're sending it to you out of the blue and they're taking the risk that you may not like it and that's journalism too you have you know you can't you know if you send it to me if I'm going to give it a bad review, that you have to be prepared to live with the consequences. And that was really hard because, um, you know, that happened and the magazine would come out and then my phone would ring and it would be that guy. Mm-hmm. And he'd be like, wow. And it made, you know, I felt terrible because I'm, I'm just human. I don't want to hurt anyone. But um, when it really boils down to it, they asked you to taste it and to give your opinion. That's right. They hoped you would like it. That's right. But to expect that you would like it would mean that, oh, the gift means that you're going to agree with the quality of it or that you're going to automatically give it. Right. And what you're, you know, letting them know is what you're giving me is an opportunity to tell you what I think. What I think. Not to tell you that I agree with you. That's right. Or, 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 you know, when they, then they would call and they would say, well, I don't understand, you know, Bob Parker gave it a great review or Jim Lobby gave it a great review and you know I have to say well I know but I'm not Bob Parker or or Jim Lobby I'm I'm me and you sent me the wine and then you know I'd be sitting there thinking like I I don't want to be 
arguing with these people. I like these people. I respect them. So that was really hard, and, and it remained hard until my last day. We talked about a couple of things that I want to double back on, because when you mentioned them, they just sort of, they were triggers that I think, not only for me, feel like they're great places to explore, but also I think for anybody listening, they're, they're things that they wouldn't mind understanding, or that maybe hearing someone else say it can give it a bit of a, a different credence. You said tasting's hard, and I think tasting's hard simply because I have difficulty understanding the lexicon. Yeah, you know the the language that goes with it. Yeah, and the way that that language can make it so esoteric that how do you approach it? Yeah, you know, and and how did you approach? Tasting? Well, that's a great question. We have five senses. Um, we have very good vocabularies for sight. We have pretty good vocabulary, nomenclature for sound. But for aromas and, and tastes, um, at least in English, the language is very impoverished. And I'm not really sure why, but, um, but it is. You know, people say we, there are four basic tastes, or five if you include umami. Correct. Right, sweet, salt, sour, bitter, and now last twenty years or so, umami. Well, five tastes is not very much. Um, so if you're talking, and, and there are very few terms for aromas, mm. except through analogy. You know, you can say something smells like Limburger cheese, or something smells like baby poop. Right, but. So there, there is no standard scientific uh, nomenclature for aromas and, uh, and tastes. But wine has developed over the centuries its own, and it's been a very interesting um, evolution. And, and, and this is one of the things I've learned uh, by having old wine books. Um, people have been describing wine for millennia. You know, you go back to the Greeks and the Romans and you have people like Pliny, Columella, um, talking, even in the Odyssey, I mean, there are descriptions of, about wine. But they, you know, they would describe wine as in, in sort of generic terms, like it was so strong that... that you know, it put Odysseus to sleep or something like that. But that doesn't really tell you what it tasted like. But then if you come in, into more modern times, really wine writing, as we know, it sort of originated with the Brits, with the British. And you go, you get to the 18th century, and, and there's sort of this minor explosion of people who are writing about wine. And in particular, they're writing about Bordeaux, and Burgundy, the, the, and to some extent Port, right? Um, so even Thomas Jefferson um, was doing a lot of writing about wine, but still, if you read that stuff, you still don't know what it tasted like. What was it like? We know that if you read Jefferson, I mean, he would say, you know, this, these are really good wines and they're really noble wines, and this vineyard 
in Bordeaux produces a superior wine to that of its neighbors, but it still doesn't tell you, well, what was it like? And right? it raises a question, what is noble? What is Oh superior? my God, you're getting into the hot, tall weeds here. So, you know, but he's raising these terms to explain it, and right. yet it feels like the explanation raises just as many questions it, as oh, saying, oh, you're it was so, good. You're so smart. It, <laughs> that's, that's so... Oh my God, where do you start? Um, well, let's just continue with, uh, sure. descri- with writing about wine. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. So all, all, even in, into the 19th century and then, as I was saying, uh, post-prohibition uh, in the United States with this explosion of books that came out in the 30s and 40s, they were still talking about wine in terms of almost, uh, what, what's the word, um, when, when you make something sound human, anthropomorphic kinds of qualities. It's like this is a very feeble wine or a very noble wine or a very distinguished wine. And what, what does that mean, right? Um, so, but then you get into this modern era and the baby boomers, my generation came of age and grew up and suddenly had money to spend. And so there was this explosion of interest in, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. In California, the movement was called the boutique winery movement where you had these spectacular new post-prohibition wineries that were really almost catered to the baby boomers who had money. And um, and this being a media-centered society, you had a new generation of wine, books, and newsletters and magazines arise in the 70s and 80s, among which was the wine spectator, right? And, and for various reasons, the new wine writers took wine writing to a whole different level and a much more controversial level because instead of imbuing wine with these anthropomorphic qualities that had sufficed for centuries, people now started talking about what what later became fodder for jokes about, you know, ah, the delicate aromas of armpits and, and baby diapers and crushed violets sprinkled with twizzle you know, raspberry twizzle or something like that. And that's sort of where wine writing is now. Um, And it's become very controversial because um, I think probably in in the future, people will will look back at the last 40 years or so of wine writing and think like it it became really sort of Baroque Mm. and and, uh, weird and exaggerated. But it still leaves open the question that people like reading about wine and they enjoy reading what quote-unquote experts think about wine and they need they seem to need some kind of guidance when they go to the supermarket because the wine aisle is the infamous wall of wine and it is confusing and anxiety provoking and all I have to do is bring myself back to that first visit with my cousin saying they're all the same and and apparently they're not all the same so people really need help 
And, and as long as there's a need for help, there's going to be money to be made. And, um, and so you have, you know, yet another generation, kids young enough to be my grandchildren, and they're now mainly blogging about wine because there aren't that many print jobs around. But, you know, they're still experimenting with, like, how do you describe this stuff? Should I describe it the way Steve Heimoff was describing wine in the 1990s? Or is there a more updated way? And I remember in the very late 90s, early 2000s, that conversation was already happening is uh, a new generation was coming online. And I remember there was a wine publication that had a very short life, but a very interesting one. And they they started talking about wine in terms of likening it to celebrities. And they would say, well, this Pinot Noir is like, uh, oh, who is Burt Reynolds' girlfriend? Um, Loni, whatever. You know, I mean, th- th- this, Lonnie, something. Lonnie Anderson. Thank you. Yeah, this this reminds me of Lonnie Anderson with, you know, big boobs and, and long curly hair. And it's kind of like lithe and cute and flirty and sexy. It's not really serious, but... And I remember thinking like, God, I hope this is not the future of wine writing. I understand that my generation didn't get it exactly right, but I sincerely hope that's not where it's going. It certainly sounds objectified, if anything yeah, else. Yeah, it, it was very weird. Um, so this goes back to the issue of tasting's hard. Tasting is hard, yeah. And you, you need a template. And for better or for worse, the template was your ancestors. You know, you have to learn the way they did it and then adapt that to your own style and approach. But also, you're getting paid by a publisher. And that publisher may have a certain way he wants it done. And generally, there's a managing editor between the publisher and and me, and that meant so you know, then a lot of this stuff becomes political and personal and office politics and stuff like that. So it, it, there's a lot to take into account, and it, it is harder than just you know starting a wine blog, which anyone can do. I mean, so, you know, with the advent of the blogs suddenly you have published you can publish yourself universally all over the world for free it doesn't mm-hmm. even cost anything and so anybody can pour a glass of wine and sit there at their computer and go well i'm going to review this wine and i happen to think that you you need credentials to do it the right way but when i was active in blogging i got into some major epic battles with younger bloggers who were saying who the fuck are you just you know I have as much of a right to say what I think about wine as you do just because you're the big deal wine critic right for wine spectator for wine spectator and later for wine enthusiast um doesn't mean you're the only one that can review wine I I have the right to say what I think about it too and and obviously yes you do you know um does but presumably you're writing for an audience and what 
how have you shown the audience that you your what you say is is worthy of being um, read by them, or as worthy of being read by them as as me? And even as I say that, you know, I'm thinking of this brouhaha that Diane Feinstein just got into with um, the video the other day that went viral. Go ahead, keep going. Our senior set, uh, senator, 85 years old, I think, um, and she was at an elementary school, and she's got these little six- and seven-year-old kids going like, Senator Feinstein, um, why don't you back the Green New Deal? And Feinstein got kind of arrogant, and, and she's talking to these seven-year-old kids, and she's saying, like, you know, kids, I've been doing this for a long time before you were born. And trust me, I know more about this stuff than you do, so don't just tell me to take the green. And it went viral, and, and Feinstein is still in a world of hurt. She's getting shit from everywhere for, for being you know, arrogant and um, not listening to these little kids who are the future, right? So you know, I was always aware of the fact, once I got heavily into blogging, that... Um, well, you know, people do have the right to get online. And, and some of those people, they're, they're me 30 years ago, hmm. you know, and they're going to be the really famous people 10, 15 years from now. So who, who am I to judge them or something? And that was a very interesting period of, of my life when, when my wine, I had a big wine blog and it was very well read, but it was always a center of... Uh, controversy and hmm. I'd like to go back to the credentials part yeah. just for a moment I mean what did that look like before the advent and the opportunity that blogging allowed what what were you know in your opinion maybe your credentials or what were maybe the set of credentials that were sort of needed in order to have that either weight or clout well, as the, a reviewer. Yeah, the credentials come from commercial success. That's so the, it's an the bottom thing. line. Yeah, right, you time earn and it. earning something. Yeah. Um, and now, how does that butt up or mesh with what's available now through this universal exposure yeah, of blogging? Yeah. Is there a change? And what does that look like to you, just based on what right, you've been able to see? Right, right, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, having gone through the blog wars, and that's what it was, um, it gave me a unique perspective because uh, not only had I already become credentialed in print, but I started my wine blog in 2008, and it quickly rose to to be, lit you know, really one of the most top wine blogs in, in the country. And so I... I got a really good perspective because um, in 2008, 2009, it was almost conventional wisdom among younger people that print, print journalism was, was dead. Newspapers were going out of existence. Mm -hmm. The New York Times almost went bankrupt in, during the Great Recession. The Chronicle almost went out of it. I mean, and so you had all these younger uh, people, not just in wine, but in everywhere in publishing, 
saying the future is digital. No one is going to be reading fucking newspapers or magazines, much less books anymore. And I would argue on my blog that I, first of all, I didn't believe that. You know, nobody knows. No one has a crystal ball. But that reading, I don't know, it just seems so integral to the human experience to, to hold something in your hands and I don't know. So I think the the predictions from 10 years ago, the print was dead, have proven to be completely false, right? And the thing that I was trying to convince people, 2009, 2010, was, yeah, all these magazines and newspapers are, are struggling. They are going out of business. But you know what? It's not the Internet that's doing that. It's the fucking Great Recession. It's the economy, stupid, right? To At, quote and paraphrase a popular... To quote and paraphrase, the instant the Great Recession happened, uh, oh, wait, advertising went off the cliff. And advertising is what sells magazines, not what sells, but what pays the bills for print journalism. It's not subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Nobody makes their profit through subscriptions, they make it through advertising. You know, a little quarter page ad in the Wine Spectator would be, who knows what it is today, I, I, a lot of money, right? Um, so advertising was off 50% almost overnight. And that's when print was really wobbling between existence and extinction, Right. you know? But you had all these kids online saying, see, we told you, you know, it's all going to be blogs in the future. And I was like, you know what? My reading of history is that things don't happen that way. They, you know, um, the recession will be over and print will bounce. And that, I think that's what basically happened. Print, it's still, it still has its struggles. Um, but good print is still very much alive. Wine Spectator is still doing very well. My last magazine, Wine Enthusiast, still doing very, very well. You know, San Francisco Chronicle doing very well. New York Times making buckets of money. So um, where things are now is, uh, just for wine writing, um, I think there's still a need for wine writers because wine is very popular and people do need their hands held to navigate what do I buy and what, you know, how much should I pay for that bottle of Chardonnay? But now people have their, uh, there's just more opportunities. There's so much in print, there's so much online um, that it's probably harder. It's definitely harder for the sole person like me to become kind of famous because there's just too many of me's out there now um and the money was was never good anyway i mean you know people would say to me how can i become a wine writer and i'd say well you know first of all you should realize like it it doesn't pay well the perks are fantastic but it just doesn't pay well right um so i don't know what the future is i mean it to me I i think probably for all but a handful of wine writers, it, it's just going to be a hobby, a labor of love, 
you know. And they still get the free wine. And that's why a lot of people start the blogs because, you know, they want that stuff coming in. And, it, and it's fun. Nothing better than enjoying a great bottle you didn't pay for. You didn't pay for it, yeah. <laughs> and whatever, if you maybe one it or two things better, but it's, <laughs> it's, right, it's right up there, yeah. I want to uh, talk a little bit about how you were saying that folks still need help and that, one, when there's a need for help, that there's always going to be an opportunity mm-hmm. for money to be made. That's right. But you don't make the money by just saying, I'm here to help, and then standing there. You actually have to do something. And one of the biggest challenges I would imagine is how to take something that, again, through its history of language and even through the last 40 years in which there's been an attempt to modernize that language or to bring it into um, maybe into the home as as easily as possible to... Yeah. to make that more of the, the language that we use instead of the language we're trying to understand. How do you facilitate your role as a translator? Somebody who's trying to put that into print in a way that people are going to pick it up and read it and make that connection so that it's not something that they have to get their wine dictionary in order to be able to yeah. read along and, and understand because you're, you're, you're speaking to not only the experts who already understand what you're talking about right. and they can relate to that. Yeah. But you also know that not all of your readers have that level of expertise. Well, it, it's a jug, it's a fine line or juggling. I would imagine act. it's both. I mean, I mean, it sounds like juggling on a fine line. You know, people talk about wine drinkers and I would always point out that there, there's not just one audience of wine drinkers in America. There are many levels. And so you kind of have to figure out what, who am I talking to? Who's my, Audience. audience you know if you're writing for a magazine which i was fortunate enough to do by definition you know who your audience is it's the buyers and subscribers of that magazine and your bosses will let you know exactly what the demographics are you know um if you're just starting off as a blogger you also have to figure out like you know issues of of marketing and promotion aside who am I writing for? I mean, am I writing for uh, mommies? Am I writing a mommy wine blog? Because mommies drink wine. And, you know, am I writing for a professional audience? Do I want wine writers or winemakers to read me? Two totally different things. Mm-hmm. Mommies and wine makers, totally different, right? So, you know, to some extent you have to figure out who you're writing for but you know you're you're a writer and you agonize over the written word as much as i ever did and that's what it comes down to i basically know who the better or the more famous bloggers are now and i know who's getting hired in the magazines and the newspapers mm-hmm. and they're good writers you know and that's i guess that's the thing that pissed me off maybe more than anything else was the feeling of some of a young person who would start a blog and they would think like, I I don't have to know how to write well to do this. I can have misspellings. I can have grammatical errors. I can have run on sentences. I can just not make any sense. You know, I can stream of consciousness, stream of consciousness. I can use the same noun three times 
in one paragraph in, instead of sitting there with my thesaurus and thinking like, well, there's got to be a, a more interesting way of saying this. You know, it's the mechanics. It's the sweat uh, of writing, right? And that's, I think, what annoyed me. Right before I retired, they, they have this thing called the Wine Bloggers Conference. Okay. And, you know, it's an entrepreneurial thing. These guys realize, like, there's a thousand bloggers out there, maybe more, and they're willing to pay six, seven hundred dollars for three days at a resort in wine country. And, you know, and, and I used to get invited to those a lot to, to talk about different things. And in one of them, it was like, Steve, give a workshop to our young bloggers in writing. And that was my main thing is like, you got to be a fucking good writer. And they got so pissed, you know, and they, they would hand in their samples. And I, I mean, in some cases, I, I would just have to tear them apart and say, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but this is really bad writing. And they would say, well, just because you don't like it doesn't mean it's bad writing. And you know, then I feel bad and they feel bad. And I'm like, well, this is not worked out quite the way <laughs> we were all hoping it would be. But it was it was true. I mean, you have to write well. You could be writing about a sports writer or, or cruise ships or wine or, or comic books or anything. But if you can't put together like interesting, strong, compelling writing and correct writing, then... Why bother? And you and you're not going to make it anyway. I really, I really appreciate the way you just described that because I think we doubled back around and might have answered one of those questions I raised earlier, which was, how do you get the credentials? And I think it goes back to something that you said about putting in the work. Mm -hmm. For you, it was about. The commercial success that was how you gained the recognition the experience that allowed you to yeah but to get to the commercial success I had to read all his books you did and which, and, which and, and, and I and I had work. to learn how to oh, I already knew how to write but I had to learn how to really fucking write well that first big article for wine spectator when I was hanging out in the urinals mm -hmm. I mean who was somebody I can't remember who, Gore Vidal or somebody. How, how do you write well? Easy, just slice your wrist open and, and bleed on the page. On the That's writing. Writing is, but if you if you love it, if you love it, there's nothing better than than working on a sentence until it's just it just you flick it with your fingernail and just ding. It's got that beautiful. <laughs> crystal ring to it thing and um that's what it's all about but in those examples those are things that are earned you don't just write that line and it's perfect because you put the pen to the paper and you began it with a capital letter and you ended it with a punctuation a period. Mark, yeah right whatever that punctuation mark mark be that's not what makes it great writing it's the agonizing over everything about that sentence that says what you want it to say right. the way you want it to say it with that's the right. sound that makes it ring true that's right that's where you earn it that's right and it sounds like if i'm reading it right and, and please let me know if i'm if i'm off in any way but 
that sounds like where the the biggest uh, crux of the the con of contention, where the real contention lie between you and these bloggers that you're talking about from 2008. If you're reading lazy writing, they haven't earned the respect that commercial success once credentialed that now can be recognized through the That's amount right. of effort put into it. Yeah. In order to write the great article you did for the Wine Spectator, not only did you have the knowledge that you gained from personal experience, speaking mm -hmm. with experts, reading, and gaining the expertise that comes from the knowledge you're absorbing from that, right. but then putting in the amount of effort that made that article in the Wine Spectator That's right. so great. That's right. And the effort that you had to keep putting in each time in order to get close to that success or equal it and, every and, time you wrote. And by the way, reading, <clears throat> not just reading wine writers, reading lit literature. Reading in general. The writer who's had the greatest impact on my writing was Winston Churchill. Why? Because he was a fucking amazing writer. Uh, people don't know that he won the Nobel Prize for literature. Did you know that? I can honestly say I did not. What was it for? His History of World War II. Six volumes, million and a half words or so of uh, his history. I mean, the famous quote is he, people said, Sir Winston, how, how do you think history will treat your role in the Second World War? And he said, I know exactly how because I intend to write it. <laughs> and he did. Of all the major figures of World War II is the only one that wrote memoirs. Roosevelt died too soon. Hitler died too soon. Stalin never did. I mean, Hirohito never did. But Winston Churchill wrote a million and a half words. And in, in fact, I am now on my fourth read-through. About every 10 years, I read through the whole six. And I just started volume five. Again, and I never fail to be inspired by how great his writing is. It's just, he's funny, for one thing. People don't know it. People don't think of Winston Churchill as a funny writer. But this is sort of that dry British wit. You yes, know, masterpiece that's something I think that's always been something that was attributed to him. Yeah, yeah. But, um, so, you know, just, just, write, just reading people um i i love uh i can list a lot of people i love but you know to, to learn how to write you have to read great writers and and not all wine writers are great writers so i learn other things from reading the old wine books but what a great combination yeah you know what i mean you're, what you're talking about is that you went to the places where the knowledge exists and yeah. that's going to be in the books that were written by your predecessors, right. people who studied wine before you, and yeah. the knowledge that they gained and passed on. Yeah. And then on top of it, well, now that you have the knowledge about wine, in order to write about mm -hmm. wine well, mm -hmm. you have to learn how to write well, which means you have to yeah. read great writing. That's right. And then you have to take both of those things, right. and you have to put them together. Yeah. And then you have to figure out how to write well, mm -hmm. and then how to write about wine well, so that when you're done, right. you are writing about wine well. That's right. If the people that you're looking at, either in 2008 when you're reading their blogs, at these workshops when they're bringing you work, yeah, and anyone else who you're reading, that's what the level or the bar of measurement for that's, you that's is going right. to be based on. Yeah, are you one writing well? 
Yeah. Two, are you writing with knowledge about this subject, which is in the case we're talking about wine? Right. And then two, are you writing well about that knowledge? And and but there's three too. You What's know, the last one then? Presumably, you have a job. <laughs> So there's all there's all the technical minutia of, of writing. You have to meet deadlines. Yes. Think about that. You know, this is publication. There's a deadline. Uh, you have to meet word count. You know, if you have an article, your editor says 2,500 words, that's it. You know, you got to tell that story in 2,500 words. You can't just ramble on and on. And, and you can't hand in 1,100 words if, you know, it's 2,500 um, so there's just the professional standards. Now, I guess if you have a blog and, you know, there's no deadlines, you don't have a boss or anything like that. But that's, but then you have to be your own boss, right? And you have to impose your own standards on yourself. You have to create your own professional You can't standards. just bullshit <laughs> just, just because blogging is free. You know, you get WordPress and and you create a template or something like that. You know, you have to be your own taskmaster. Task master. So that that would be the third part. It's just the professional responsibilities of, of being a writer. And when you're not seeing that, you're... I mean, when you cannot recognize that in the quality of the work that you're reading yeah it's really easy easy to then say okay well you don't have the credentials right to look to gain or to receive the recognition you're looking for because yeah you didn't earn them yet yeah you you haven't put in the work right and i think in a lot of ways that would hold true for almost anyone in almost any trade or craft if you don't put in the work that's right it's gonna show through you can say you're a painter and slap paint on a a canvas. Right. But if you haven't put any work into it, yeah. a master is going to come along and let you know that's, exactly where your expertise you know, th- is or is not. That's true. I remember because um, I was an art student first in college and, um, you know, there was sort of this thing of like, well, anyone can make abstract art. You just start, you know, Jackson Pollock, throw paint at the can. But, you know, what people didn't understand was like um, almost all the great abstract artists had solid foundation in classical drawing and painting. I mean, Picasso certainly did. He, you look at some of his er- earliest work from the 1890s and so on, and he was just, he, he, even in pencil or, or, or pastel or something, was making the most exquisite fucking uh, portraits of, of faces and heads. I mean, his, you know, line. So, you know, later, once he mastered the fundamentals, he could break the rules and do cubism and whatever. Um, but you got to, you know, for writing anyway, you, you have to start with the, the fundamentals. That's, that's what I really believe. There's a great old adage that, that says that, that you have to know the rules before you can break before you can break them you you have to have that understanding yeah otherwise you're you're playing but without the understanding to support it right and just like laziness it shows through yeah anybody looking is gonna go oh you don't know what you're doing here and there's never been anybody who's given an interview uh, 
in, about success in their field, whether it's a, a tech giant or a writer or a Hollywood star. I mean, what's the one thing they always say? You gotta really work your ass off. You know, I didn't get here by accident. No, I was not an overnight sensation. I've read so many Hollywood, um, you know, memoirs or autobiographies where, you know, the star will say, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, I earned that Oscar like, you know, my, the second week I was acting or something. But they, they don't realize, like, I'd worked my ass off for 15 years, you know, in, in little theaters and making, uh, you know, what it, whatever it's called, uh, home movies and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, and I, I, I realize I'm reacting strongly, but um, just for wine writing, I feel very protective of wine writing. It's a very beautiful thing. It has great roots in history, as I was saying, back to the Greeks and Romans. And, um, and, and it's a wonderful art and craft, and it deserves to be in the right hands. But I trust... It, it will be even with the internet because, uh, you know, no one's going to go blogging forever without any readers, or maybe they will. I, I shouldn't say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I, I switched my wine blog when, when I retired to politics, and not, very few people read it anymore. I lost like thousands of readers overnight. So I understand, you know, sometimes it can just be a labor of, of passion and love. But, um, you know, if if you really want to have that credibility and the credentials we're talking about, yeah, it's those three things. Learn how to write, learn the subject matter, and learn the professional aspects of, of having a job. And now we're going to take a quick break to pay some bills with this word from our sponsor. And then you have to take both of those things right. and you have to put them together. Yeah. And then you have to figure out how to write well mm-hmm. and then how to write about wine well so that when you're done, right. you are writing about wine well. That's right. If the people that you're looking at, either in 2008 when you're reading their blogs, at these workshops when they're bringing you work, yeah. and anyone else who you're reading, that's what the level or the bar of measurement for that's, you that's is going right. to be based on. Yeah. Are you... One, writing well. Yeah. Two, are you writing with knowledge about this subject, which is, in the case, we're talking about wine. Right. And then two, are you writing well about that knowledge? And, and But there's three, too. You What's know, the if, last one, then? Presumably, you have a job. <laughs> so there's all, there's all the technical minutia of, of writing. You have to meet deadlines. Yes. Think about that. You know, this is publication there's a deadline uh you have to meet word count you know if you have an article your editor says 2500 words that's it you know you got to tell that story in 2500 words you can't just ramble on and on and and you can't hand in 1100 words if you know it's 2500 um so there's just the professional standards now i guess if you have a blog and you know there's no deadlines. You don't have a boss or anything like that. But that's. But then you have to be your own boss, right? And you have to impose your own standards on yourself. You have to create your own. You can't standards. just bullshit. 
<laughs> just, just because blogging is free, you know, you get WordPress and, and you create a template or something like that. You know, you have to be your own taskmaster. Task master. So that, that would be the third part. It's just the professional responsibilities of, of being a writer. And when you're not seeing that, you're, I mean, when you cannot recognize that in the quality of the work that you're reading, yeah. it's really easy, easy to then say, okay, well, you don't have the credentials right. to look to gain or to receive the recognition you're looking for because yeah. you didn't earn them yet. Yeah. You, know, you haven't put in the work. Right. And I think in a lot of ways that would hold true for almost anyone in almost any trade or craft. If you don't put in the work, it's, it's right. going to show through. Yeah. You can say you're a painter and slap paint on a, a canvas. Right. But if you haven't put any work into it, yeah. a master is going to come along and let you know that's, exactly where your expertise you know, th is or is not. That's true. I remember because um, I was an art student first in college. And, um, you know, there was sort of this thing of like, well, anyone can make abstract art. You just start, you know, Jackson Pollock, throw paint at the can. But, you know, what? people didn't understand was like um, almost all the great abstract artists had solid foundation in classical drawing and painting. I mean, Picasso certainly did. He, you look at some of his er earliest work from the 1890s and so on, and he was just, even in pencil or, or, or pastel or something, was making the most exquisite fucking uh, portraits of, of faces and heads. I mean, his, you know, line. So, you know, later, once he mastered the fundamentals, he could break the rules and do cubism and whatever. Um, but you gotta, you know, for writing anyway, you, you have to start with the the fundamentals. That's That's what I really believe. There's a great old adage that that says that that you have to know the rules before you can break before them. you can break that them you, you have to have that understanding yeah otherwise you're you're playing but without the understanding to support it right and just yeah. like laziness it shows through yeah you know, anybody looking is going to go oh you don't know what you're doing here and there, there's never been anybody who's given an interview uh, in, about success in their field whether it's a, a tech giant or a writer or a Hollywood star. I mean, what's the one thing they always say? You gotta really work your ass off. You know, I didn't get here by accident. No. I was not an overnight sensation. I've read so many Hollywood, um, you know, memoirs or autobiographies where, you know, the star will say, you know, everybody thinks that, you know, I earned that Oscar like, you know, my, the second week I was acting or something, but they, they don't realize like I'd worked my ass off for 15 years, you know, in, in little theaters and making, uh, you know, what it, whatever it's called, uh, home movies and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, and I, I, I realize I'm reacting strongly, but, um, just for wine writing, I feel very protective of wine writing. It's a very beautiful thing. It has great roots in history, as I was saying, back to the Greeks and Romans. And, um, and, and it's a wonderful 
art and craft, and it deserves to be in the right hands. But I trust it, it will be even with the internet because, uh, you know, no one's going to go blogging forever without any readers, or maybe they will. I, I shouldn't say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> now I, I switched my wine blog when, when I retired to politics, and not, very few people read it anymore. I lost like thousands of readers overnight. So I understand, you know, sometimes it can just be a labor of, of passion and love. But, um, you know, if, if you really want to have that credibility and the credentials we're talking about, yeah, it's those three things. Learn how to write, learn the subject matter, and learn the professional aspects of, of having a job. Which is a great opportunity to actually move into a couple of other directions because I think I think you were talking about something that that triggered a thought in my head. You're very protective of wine writing. You're you feel a either a responsibility to it yeah. or a recognition of its value mm -hmm. and and what it needs in order to maintain that value. And I'm sure that that also came through your experience in wine writing. Describe, if you would, the change from those first early, heady, magnificent experiences that you had mm -hmm. to five to ten years in. Yeah. When you've been doing this for a while, and mm -hmm. it's no longer about the yeah. surprise or wonder, mm -hmm. but it's more about that recognition of, I'm going to be doing this for in a period of time mm -hmm. beyond this moment that I'm thinking about. Yeah. What am I doing here now beyond just filling pages and meeting deadlines? What am I trying to do either as a wine writer, for wine writing? Wow. And yeah. do I have any sort of like goals or legacy that, that I want to leave behind uh. or an intention that after you've had a few years of experience, what do you want to do with this as a longer narrative? yeah well that's you're asking some really killer questions <laughs> um well what comes to mind is that i think uh for me anyway wine writing had a lifespan a natural lifespan because everything does and what was that lifespan i think it reached the point eventually where it was becoming repetitious and predictable i i used to joke that how many times, how many years in a row can you write the same column on what to drink for Thanksgiving? It never changes. You could just write the same fucking column, just run the same column every year because it never changes. The answer is always the same. Um, or how many times can you write an article on uh, Zinfandel reinvents itself, right? Mm-hmm. Or how many times can you write an article on the new wave of Chardonnay? I mean, so in the beginning, it was terribly exciting. It was like being an astronaut, you know, blasting into space where no man had ever been before and discovering all this stuff. 25, 30, 30 years later, it's basically you're just reinventing the same wheel over and over again and your writing can be perfect and all that kind of stuff but just for me the the interest just flagged 
it, it just wasn't that interesting anymore because I'd done it so many times. Um, blogging was always, blogging, which was my blog, it had nothing to do with my job, became my passion in 2008. That's where I could really experiment, experiment with a more adventurous and personal style of writing, um, which I could not do with the magazine. The magazines increasingly got more like jails, you know. Um, more restrictions. Far more restrictions. Um, hate to say it, but uh, advertising crept in. Mm. Considerations of advertising, um, which is horrible because in journalism, there has to be a bright red firewall between the journalism side or the editorial side and the advertising side. They cannot conflict with each other, you know. So what if in the magazine, what if I wanted to say something less than charitable about one of the big advertisers? Mm -hmm. That always led to hideous tension, terrible tensions and really deep discussions about freedom of, of the press and, and, you know, what kind of reputation do you want, Mr. Magazine Publisher? Right? Well, you're talking about biting the hand that feeds you. That's right. You're also right. talking about journalistic integrity. Oh, yeah. And, and then you're, <sighs> you're coming up against that one thing that, I mean, it'll move into it at some point with our discussion about politics, but money equaling speech. Head-on collision. And, and you see that all the time on, you know, reputable publications like the New York Times don't allow those sorts of conflicts to happen. Um, less reputable publications do. And, I, and I'm not saying anything specific. I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not going to level accusations against any of my former employers, but I will say that there were times when I became increasingly uncomfortable, um, which is why blogging was such a breath of fresh air, because no one could edit it or censor me. And, and you know, I always had my own outspoken points of view that you had to be careful about in the magazine. But the blog was like freedom, you know, it's like, uh, it's like setting out in the covered wagon leaving St. Louis for the wide open wild west you know we're gonna homestake this place and 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 set out on a new life and that got me in trouble with the magazine too because uh, my publisher at that time was like you're saying things on your blog that are making some of my advertisers very uncomfortable and I'm like well so I eventually the last three years of my career I left uh, wine writing and went to work for uh, Jackson Family Wines which is the parent company of Kendall Jackson yes and and a superb portfolio of wineries across the world and a family that I I had always had enormous respect for I mean there are big wine companies that I would never have worked for and there were big wine companies that I would have worked for. So Jackson Family Wines finally, my last three years, offered me a, a job that had 
very little to do with wine writing anymore and like double the salary <laughs> so so i did that and it was a very so you, you know it was, yes. it was a great experience and i had a lot of fun and then i hit 70 and that was the natural time to get out but you're still writing and one of the things that i not about wanna, wine no and what i do want to talk about uh just for a minute is that you found uh, a new passion mm -hmm. that you had a successful period writing for a wine magazine. Then you had one of the most well-known wine blogs. Mm -hmm. And now you've moved in a completely different direction. Yeah. And it's still about writing and it's still about something you're passionate about. That's right. But it's not about money. No. Oh, God, no. <laughs> and it's... Not about something as simple or concrete as, oh, this is what I'm doing to pay the bills. There's a reason behind why you're doing it. Right. It's about a passion. Totally. And I wanted to let you just say anything you want about that. Well, somebody has to do? stop this man. Okay. This Trump. You know, and, and fortunately, um, tens of maybe hundreds of millions of Americans understand that. And there is, um, quote unquote, the resistance. Um, and I think it's a miracle. I'm so proud of, of so many Americans um, for getting involved in the resistance. I saw it very early. I retired formally in early September 2016, before the election, but after Trump already had the nomination. And I remember writing my last wine blog. Tens of thousands of people. And I said, I know I'm going to lose 95, 98% of you. I understand that. But A, I just retired. I'm not in the wine industry anymore. So why would I, you know, I'm not going to write about wine anymore. I I don't care about it anymore. I'm leaving it behind. But there is something that's much more important for me to write about. And that is to tell the truth about this man and the movement that he represents and, and to do whatever I can to destroy him and his movement and the Republican Party because um, I love my country. And I've been around for a long time. And, and I see exactly where this is going. And we, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, in addition to all my wine books, um, half my collection is, is World War II. No, and, I didn't. Yeah. Um, I mean, I totally I'm reading for the fourth time. Right. Churchill, I mean, for whatever reason, um, decades ago, I got fascinated by the uh, rise of World War II, especially in Europe not so much the Pacific theater. And uh, I grew up in that atmosphere. I was born in 46 and World War II hung very, very heavily. And and so that, that's also been my specialty, my avocation as a reader and as an armchair historian. And I understand so much about Hitler and the rise of the Nazis. And the parallels are just 
and I'm hardly the first person to, to say that, but I mean, the parallels are just frighteningly familiar. We, we've seen this movie before, and here it is again. So in September 2016, I said, that's it. I'm dedicating my blog five days a week. And um, and it is true. I lost 95% of my readers. And I, I regret that because, you know, it's nice having recognition. It's nice knowing audience. someone's reading your shit, you know. But it was more important to me to uh, to do to do the work. And, and a lot of people are doing the work and have been doing the work in their own way. And, and I, I always tell people, like, do whatever you can. You know, I, I don't want anyone to sit there and go like, oh, this is horrible, but I don't know what to do. Do whatever you can. Write a letter to the editor of your paper. Uh, write your congressman. Um, talk to your 20-year-old nephew who doesn't vote. Right? There's a lot of stuff people can do. And one of the things I can do is my, my little blog. And I, I will keep at that until I die or until Trump is in jail or dead himself or otherwise reputed, repudiated by history. Um, so that, that's a total passion. I wake up every morning, just can't wait to sort of scope out the news, what happened overnight, and then just opine on that. And it gets me in huge trouble. I mean, I put my blog up on Breitbart. <laughs> um, and, oh, God, I get death threats. And we know where you live, though. They'll publish on Breitbart. They'll put my address up, and, and they'll say, uh, you better watch that bush in front of your building there at night when you're walking your dog. Seriously, Seth. Wow. Yeah. And yet you're doing it. Fuck them. Because you're passionate about it. Yeah. You know, the same passion that drove you to write about wine and to create a sustainable living. Yeah. Through writing about something that you mm -hmm. were passionate about is the same thing that's making your key your keystrokes go and your fingers run over them. Yeah. Uh, even though it's not about receiving any sort of compensation monetarily. That's right. You know, it's about the passion behind writing something down that you feel is important enough for others to read. It's about being a voice that's sharing a belief that you think others need to hear. Yeah. It's valuable because not only because of what you see and because of your ability to write, but also through your own understanding, through history and your right. knowledge of it and your experience researching it. Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm also thinking that just because you're not writing about wine doesn't mean that you're not bringing the same degree of professionalism that you brought oh, yeah. when you wrote about I it. I mean, my writing is killer on, <laughs> on my Trump blog. It, it's really fucking killer. I would imagine the research I think is involved is. just as well also, correct? That, uh, that yeah, the research is mainly through media or Google right. and stuff. Um, but, I mean, the writing is, as far as I'm concerned, just as high of a level is that it, it, it approaches rant. I grant that, but it's well-written rant. 
<laughs> you know, and, and I have fun with it. I mean, if you're a writer, you know, I mean, good writing is fun. I said it was opening veins and stuff like that, but it's fun. It's the process is is just fucking so enjoyable to think of a, a better adjective. You know? When you said that, the, I'm, I'm reminded of this great description when I read the, uh, back in college, I remember reading uh, Stephen King's On Writing. Mm -hmm. And I remember this great description that he has after his accident. And there had been this lull from when he'd been injured by mm -hmm. uh, a motorist mm -hmm. and was unable to write to when he first tried to write again. And he describes sitting down at the chair and typing or writing a few words and then writing a few more and, and realizing that he had something that he wanted to finish. And so he started writing and he kept writing. He didn't know how long he'd been there, maybe 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And his description is of being cramped, stiff, tense, and sweaty, and almost just sort of like unsettled. And yet this magnificent sense of recognition mm -hmm. that he found this feeling again, that that sweaty, nervous, uncomfortable sort of experience was home it was familiar it was the place he had been when he had first started writing yeah and even though it was about the the strain and the effort it was also the recognition of what am i doing this for why am i putting in so much strain and effort it's because this thing i'm producing yeah is is of a value that you I'm know it's to do this. almost like he was you know taken possession of by the muse or something the way the greeks used to Yes. speak about you know you couldn't do great art without being possessed by the muse if it wasn't speaking neither were you if it wasn't speaking <laughs> and, and and grabbing a hold of you and in, investing itself in you and coming through your body and you know when you're talking about Stephen King feeling those feelings of sweat and cramped and I mean something was going on yes yes yeah. and yeah. yet it, it, for me reading that I remember times when I had something that I was trying to put down on paper that I wanted to write down and maybe I'm hungry, maybe my yeah. bladder is swollen yeah. and I'm like, if I just get a little bit more and that, that desire to stay uncomfortable because of what's coming out of it, right. that, that it was worth all this effort because what you're, uh, what you're mining for, what you're unearthing, yeah. what you're revealing and yeah. able to, to hold on to, whether yeah. it's an idea or a sentence or a paragraph. Well, you don't want to break the moment <laughs> no i mean that the bladder filled is i think any writer would be able to relate yes <laughs> to that it's like oh my god i have to piss so much but if i could just finish just this. let me finish this paragraph here you know <laughs> just calm down and everything will be fine and that weird twisted party that's like how do i not know that this isn't the thing helping me get all this out right now? <laughs> and then there's the whole aspect of i bet this has happened to you you're in the shower oh yeah or you're driving and suddenly it's like, so when I drove, I would always have my tape recorder right there in the, in the well of the dashboard. Because, it, it, you know, it's funny how when you're not trying to think of writing, the lines come or the ideas come. Sure. And you got you to gotta record that because it's gone. It's so evanescent. It's just if you don't catch it when it comes. I mean, have you ever... Hopped out of bed in the middle of the night in a dream, going like, "Oh my God, I have to write that down." It just, it just comes to me. Or knowing, I've actually knowing that I'm drifting into unconsciousness, that I can't wake up. 
I'll try and uh, one trick because I've lost so many great ideas. I've actually yeah. found myself creating a rhyme, some sort of phraseology that'll make it stick in my head. Like a mnemonic device. Yes. Yeah. So that in the morning, that, that little phrase will be yeah. instantly, re- it's something that's within that short term yeah. span yeah. that I can still recall it because it's got that yeah. sing song yeah. tune quality to it. And and yes, with without it, it's without the ability to capture it in some way, either to write it down or yeah. to, to sustain that memory, it's it's lost. And all you can ever think of is what could have been. Well, there, there's also I will say that there are so many times when I'm in bed, and maybe I've been drinking, <laughs> not maybe, <laughs> right, <laughs> and smoking, and then you know that idea comes. Uh, and it's like, oh my god! I either have to get up, but I'm so into being horizontal. And then, you know, sometimes I'll tell myself, you know what? If it was a really good idea, it'll be there tomorrow morning, w- without a mnemonic device or anything. Mm-hmm. And if it's not there, I'll have another good idea. You know, right. so it's not that desperate <laughs> sometimes, but I. I'm reminded of uh, the 19th century scientist who discovered the molecular structure of the benzene ring, which I think is is a an octagon and maybe a hexagon or something like that. But apparently, um, and this is like in the 19th century, scientists knew they were working to discover the structure of the benzene ring, but it was very complicated chemistry for for what they had back then and this guy went to sleep and had a dream about a snake eating its tail which closed the loop so it wasn't open like that it was now closed and and he woke up and remembered the dream and it's like it's a closed fucking loop dude Mm -hmm. it's not a free floating open thing um and it came to him through the dream state when, when you know, his, whatever, his sensors were relaxed and anything. So very mysterious process. Sometimes it's sitting there with a dictionary and a thesaurus, and sometimes it's just like letting go. And, yeah, I'm reminded know. of a, a lot of great writing instruction that will reference the internal editor. Yeah. That, that part of you that, that's controlling what you're allowed to consider as part of you know your process that, yeah. that it wants to sort of either keep you on track or keep you from going too far off in any direction right but also can limit your ability to consider that that that, wow. that viewpoint That's that so will true. allow you to see in and uh yeah actually i'm in the final chapters of a book and um, it's something i've been at for a while and it was just this moment where my head just shifted mm. enough mm. and perspective Angle of lighting. Um, I'm actually reminded of that great title, Wallace Stegner, the Western writer. Uh, he had a name of a book called The Angle of Repose. And mm-hmm. that, that concept of just that that momentary shift that allows you to perceive what you weren't seeing before. Yeah. And in that recognition, it was just that, that sense of, I hadn't considered that. Oh, it's magic. And now that I have, mm-hmm. now that I have, keep following it. Just take another step and wherever this goes yeah because you've you've stumbled onto something that you weren't even aware yeah. of before you know not to take it too far off but I, you you know that in the last few years my uh 
new found hobby and passion is improv. Yes. And the thing that is so similar to what we're talking about in improv is that, I mean, on, on the one hand, your teachers or your directors drill all these rules into your head. And on the other hand, then they tell you that the secret of good, good improv is to break every fucking rule that we ever taught you. And it's just, it's a constant sort of like, how do you tap into that place where you're just, the internal censored is, is not there anymore. You just transcend the eternal censor of like, will they, will they like me? Will, will they hate me if I say this? Will they be afraid of me if I do this? Just let it all go yeah. and, and just do it. I mean, that's what the great, you know, Belushi did that. That's, and they didn't worry about, you know, is this the right thing to say? Is it the wrong? Will it get me into trouble? Will somebody be angry? Um, just let it go. Just do it. Steve, I couldn't imagine a better place to wrap things up. <laughs> all right, thank you. I mean, I really think that's that's probably that's a, a really both complex and simple yeah. idea yeah. that anyone who is in the midst of a craft or in the midst of pursuing one can say, yes, that's something that I have to do. That's something that I have to remember to recognize. Yeah. That's something I have to remember to allow myself because it's part and parcel with the hard work and everything else that goes with what I'm trying to do. Yeah. The ability to also give myself enough room to breathe. Yeah. Enough room to still be me. Yeah. Despite all of these rules I'm following uh, and all yeah. of these things that yeah. I have to. And if you don't mind, I think I'm going to make that our stopping point. Thank you. Okay oh, this is great. Thank you. So thank you again for listening. And if you find yourself with an extra moment at the end of this recording, and you feel like you've got the inspiration to share, subscribe, or just tell a friend, well, thank you for that too.